0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ruben Neuenhuis. Today I am speaking with Zai Zalua about his recent book, Solidarity and the Palestinian Cause, Indigeneity, Blackness, and the Promise of Universality, published earlier this year in 2023. Zai Zalua provides the first examination of Palestinian identity from a perspective of Indigeneity, and Critical Black Studies. Examining the Palestinian question through the lens of settler colonialism and indigeneity, this timely book warns against the liberal approach to Palestinian indigeneity, which reinforces cultural domination and urgently argues for the universal nature of the Palestinian struggle. Foregrounding Palestinian indigeneity reframes the Palestinian-Israeli conflict as a problem of wrongful dispossession a historical harm that continues to be inflicted on the population under the brutal occupation of the West Bank and Gaza. At the same time, in a global context marked by liberal democratic ideology, such an approach leads either to liberal tolerance, the minority is permitted to exist so long as their culture can be contained within the majority order, or racial separatism, that is, appeals for national independence typically embodied in the two-state solution. Solidarity and the Palestinian cause not only insists that any analysis of indigeneity's purchase must keep this problem of translation in mind, but also that we must recast the Palestinian struggle as a universal one, as demonstrated by the Palestinian support for such movements as Black Lives Matter, and the reciprocal support Palestinians receive from BLM activists. The Palestinian cause fosters a solidarity of the excluded. This solidarity underscores the interlocking global struggles for emancipation from racial domination and economic exploitation. Drawing on key Palestinian voices, including Edward Said and Larissa Sansor, as well as a wide range of influential philosophers, such as Slavoj Zizek, Frantz Fanon, Achille Momet, Zaloua brings together the Palestinian question, indigeneity, and critical black studies to develop a transformative anti-racist vision of the world. Zai is Cushing Ills, Professor of Philosophy and Literature and Director of Indigeneity, Race and Ethnicity Studies at Whitman College, USA. Zai, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks, Ruben. Ruben. So to jump right in, um, you've, you've written about Palestine in some of your previous books, most notably Continental Philosophy and the Palestinian Question Beyond the Jew and the Greek. What made you want to write this book, Solidarity and the Palestinian Cause? Uh, and maybe like what new directions do you explore in this compared to your previous writings on the Palestinian yeah. cause?
1: Yeah. So in my first book, I wanted to track the Palestinian question in continental philosophy. Um I started by linking the Palestinian question to the Jewish question, a question raised by a number of philosophers, including Jean-Paul Sartre, Emmanuel Levinas, and Jacques Derrida, to mention only a few in the 20th century. The Jewish question proves central to the development and understanding of otherness, especially a certain certain image of radical alterity. Um, This sense of being other was deeply connected to the Jewish status of the timeless victim, especially after the Shoah, the the Jewish Holocaust. Raising the Palestinian question challenges this dominant philosophical tradition that conceptualizes the Jew as the ultimate figure of radical alterity. I asked in this book, what does this form of imagining the Jew as victim as the excluded Pax excellence, do to the Palestinian people and the general conclusion was, it silences them. So in this first book, um, it attempted to deal a challenge. It dealt with the challenges of articulating the position of the Palestinians, right? The book reckoned with philosophy silence over what Edward Said characterized as the victims of the victims, right? That's the status of the Palestinians. They're victims of recognized victims. So, through Said, um, I saw a kind of post colonial rejoinder to continental philosophies move, right? Move to privilege um, the figure of Jew as the figure of radical alterity. So, through this kind of post colonial rejoinder, I wanted to historicize the victim. Right? Complicating the assumption that is that the Israeli Jew is always primarily or exclusively the victim, um, so this predominant narrative, philosophical narrative, clashed with the reality of the occupation, right, with the Israeli subjugation of Palestinians. Fortunately. Continental philosophy is waking up to the Palestinian question. We can see this in the works of Etienne Balibar, Judith Butler, Alain Badiou, and Slavoj Zizek. So in Solidarity and the Palestinian Cause, the new book, I reframe the Palestinian question to shift attention to the politics of solidarity and how to think the Palestinian cause as a universal one. So I'm as as you could tell, I'm still very much engaged in continental philosophy, but the focus of the book is on thinking Palestinianness in relationship to settler colonialism, uh, and this burgeoning thought emerging out of critical black studies. How, in particular, the image of the human, not quite human and non-human, is being conceptualized. So this is where I wanted to take the Palestinian question, right, as a cause for solidarity by historicizing, right, what is it being Palestinian today, right? And settler colonialism was present in my first book, but here it's foregrounded. Um, So in this new book, I take a more explicitly, um, I take the Palestinian question as a universal cause And you can compare this to the arc of continental philosophy and the Palestinian question, which worked to elaborate a kind of robust understanding of Palestinian difference. And the book ends, in a sense, with a chapter on Derrida, Butler, Said, trying to articulate Palestinian difference as a way of avoiding... Right, the subtitle of my first book, Beyond the Jew and the Greek. So what does the Jew and the Greek stand for? Um, in this first book, it stands for a fetishized particularity, right the singularity of the Jewish people, right, the chosen people, or a kind of abstract universalism, right the figure of the Greek. So Palestinian difference was supposed to be a way of complicating that binary opposition. Now in this book, it's complementing this earlier book, but now I'm stressing the way out of this binary opposition is through universality itself, right? And I tried to make the case for the Palestinians as candidates for the concrete universal. So here the concrete universal evokes a kind of Hegelian register that Zizek has taken up in his writings, where the universal does not stand for normativity, those who are in power, right? It's not the white male subjects, right? The bourgeois subject. It actually is located in the margins of society, right? What Jacques Concierre calls the parts of no parts, right? They're the excluded. So through their exclusion, they embodied a kind of universal perspective because they don't have any particular positionality in society. So when they're voicing their grievances, they speak up for a universal perspective. Um, so one way of saying this is that Palestinians are in, but not of the world, right? Um, living in the occupied territories, they inhabit what Frantz Fanon called the Zod of Non-Being, right? Um, they're constitutively excluded from society. So their relationship to the status quo is profoundly Agonistic, right? So the average Palestinian is not invested in reproducing the status quo of the occupation. Of course, we should keep in mind there is a neoliberal Palestinian elite with close affinity to the Palestinian Authority who might prefer a version of the status quo. Still, for the majority of Palestinians, when they seek to remedy a wrong, inequality, dispossession, exclusion, they speak for universal concerns. What applies to them applies to Misrahi Jews, Ethiopian Jews, and so on. So here, to think of the Palestinian question as a Palestinian cause that is universal, it is to assume that to be for the Palestinians should not be about identity politics, about elevating or exceptionalizing Palestinian difference, where this would be to fetishize the difference of Palestinians. To be for Palestinians should be about privileging, not the Palestinian people, but a certain vision of solidarity and social justice, which must include racial and economic justice for all. And in this framework, uh, when you think of the Palestinian question, it becomes a question that touches all of us, right? Um, what happens in Palestine, Israel affects the world. Not because the Palestinians are somehow special, we should care about them, but they put on display um, the laundry of Western modernity, right? So in a sense, they compel us to intervene and and correct this fundamental injustice that we're bearing witness to.
0: Yeah, that's a really good intro to like what you're doing in the book. Um, thanks for that. And um, in the subtitle of the book, one of the concepts is indigeneity. And that's pretty crucial to what you talk about. But it's a complicated term some ways of using this term, they reinforce a colonizer perspective, but it can also be reframed to a colonized perspective. So I want to start by asking how how do you want to think of indigeneity? And can you expand on that what problems you see with various contemporary ways of, of thinking about indigeneity? Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that question. So indigeneity, indigenous are indeed critical
1: terms that can easily play into the hands of the colonizer. Settlers love to describe the other as native, as indigenous, tied to nature, devoid of any culture. So here, the decolonial thinker, Walter Mignoto argues that Europeans are also indigenous to their lands. So this is Mignoto's attempt to demystify Western categories. Indigeneity here becomes a kind of generalizable category, which scrambles the Eurocentric gaze. Personally, I, I move against Mignolo's demystification of indigeneity, right? Because I don't think that's the best way to tackle the problem. It's a good way to begin by demystifying that, in fact, we're all at some level indigenous. But here I follow indigenous scholars who reclaim the categories of indigeneity and indigenous, often by capitalizing the I, Here, indigenous is not merely a descriptive designation, it points to an oppressive colonial or settler colonial context. It casts the natives, the indigenous populations, as agents of resistance, and the settlers as invaders, dispossessors of indigenous land and resources. So from that perspective, my book asks, what does it mean to claim Palestinian indigeneity? What are its emancipatory potentials, and what are its ideological traps? right, that becomes a concern for me, right, how, I, how, as you say, indigeneity can play into the hands of the oppressor, right, by labeling you somehow closer to nature, not really um, cultivated. Um, it can reinforce a certain kind of ontological division. But if you appropriate the term to signal, hey, This is a colonial regime that I'm struggling against. Then indigeneity is less vulnerable for cooptation.
0: And one thing that comes through very strongly in your book is a critique of liberal viewpoints on Palestine, both that of Western liberals and Zionist liberals. So this is something I'm sure will come up uh, throughout the rest of our discussion, but maybe can you give an initial overview of what these viewpoints are just so that we can set the stage for what's at stake in the overall point of your book?
1: Yeah. Yeah, um, Western liberals and liberal Zionists are in many ways my primary target um, in this book. Um, I see them as giving cover to the ongoing dispossession and displacement of Palestinians. So from a psychoanalytic perspective, they're engaged in fetishist the whose mode of operation can be summarized as, I know very well, but all the same. Liberals know very well that Palestinians are suffering under the occupation, but all the same, they believe in Israel's singularity, in the two-state solution. They believe in Israel as a democratic and Jewish state and in the possibility of coexistence with the Palestinians. So here, right, they're able to acknowledge suffering. They can claim knowledge of suffering, of Palestinian suffering, but they still, in a sense, believe in Israel's greatness, right? They haven't really come around to the question of decolonizing Israel, de-Zionizing Israel. These are not questions for them. They can recognize on one hand the knowledge of Palestinian suffering, but that knowledge is neutralized immediately. So, peace talk, right? In a sense, you know, a liberal Zionist can signal their difference from, let's say, right wingers, um, you know, religious or political Zionists by saying, no, 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 we're in the peace camps, we believe. In peace with Palestinians. But that utterance is devoid of any kind of force or reality. Right? So uh, liberal, liberal Zionists want peace, right? But only on one condition, as long as Jewish privilege is left unchallenged. So liberal Zionists can always claim they're for peace, that they're always waiting. But but the problem here is not with them, they're ready for peace what they're waiting for is a Palestinian Gandhi, a Palestinian Mandela, right? That's the rhetoric that you constantly hear from the liberal Zionists. Liberals in the West follow the same script. Um, what they like about the peace talk, literally as talk, right, is the vision of nonviolence as a precondition for peace talks, for Western liberal support of the Palestinian cause. So here the emphasis on nonviolence denies the Palestinians' right to resist their domination. It effaces the Zionist's originary violence and puts the blame flatly on Hamas and anybody else who dares to engage in armed struggle against an occupying force. So on the one hand, right, if religious or political Zionists give us occupation on steroids, by that I mean they don't hide their genocidal ambitions, on the other Liberal Zionists give us occupation on cruise control. So for me, the outcome is basically the same right, when it comes to Palestinians' well-being. The only difference is that liberal Zionists, the liberal Zionist position is still convincing Western powers to stick to the status quo. Right? People in the West are increasingly supporting the Palestinian cause, but their elected leaders are still backing, frankly, a murderous regime. So, relatedly, um, liberals love to hate Netanyahu, right? Liberals in Israel and liberals in the U.S. and the rest of the world. Um, So, they love hating Netanyahu, they love to blame him and his neo-fascist coalition um, for Israel's kind of global demotion, right? the, the, The stock of Israel has gone down, Right? But the problem with this kind of liberal perspective on Netanyahu is they fail to see that Netanyahu is not the problem. Israel is the problem. Israel, driven by Zionist supremacist ideology. And you can look at all the prime ministers in Israel have, in one version or another, emphasized Jewish priority, Jewish supremacy over this land. Um, so this is why I see uh, the liberal Zionists and the Western liberal as basically doing more damage to the Palestinian cause easily in the long term, right? Because you still think there's a solution if you follow that script.
0: Right, it's kind of like a distraction from what the actual issue is. Um, and that's, that, that ties into what you're talking about. They want change without actual change because the change they're aimed at is just... Um, it's a rabbit trail or, you know, Mm -hmm. right. Well, I want to turn to critical black studies, which is another concept that or um, um, study that you engage with and um, largely with the movement of Afro pessimism, and more particularly with Frank Wilderson. One of Wilderson's positions is that Black Lives Matter is or should be fundamentally at odds with the Palestinian cause. He strikingly says, quote, Ferguson is a threat to Palestine, a threat far greater than that of Israel's occupying army, end quote. Can you unpack why, why do Afro-pessimists um, maintain this claim, and why do you nevertheless still call for a Black-Palestinian solidarity? Yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you for that
1: question. Um, so Afro-pessimism plays a very important role in my analysis, Though I would stress as well that you know, Frantz Fanon, Fred Moten, Achille Membe, who are key figures in critical Black studies, are also crucial for me. Um, so Fanon is a major influence for the Afro-Pessimists, and Moten is a key interlocutor. Membe was initially claimed by the Afro-Pessimists by Wilderson, um, but he departs from their orbit in his refusal to ontologize anti-Blackness he chooses instead to draw attention to what he calls the becoming black of the world, a vicious paradigm and logic that he ties to global capitalism, which, which is sparing less and less people from becoming human capital commodified beings. So these are the three thinkers that I'm thinking along with um, Sexton and Willison, and namely from the Afro-pessimist camp. So as you point out, Wilderson is deeply suspicious of the possibility of black Palestinian solidarity. And this concern, to be fair, is not without cause, right? Anti-blackness underpins so much of our thinking and imagination. The claims of solidarity with the black cause are often betrayed once the interests of non-blacks are satisfied. For the Afro-pessimists, the problem is not so much white supremacy, as anti-blackness. And the difference here is significant. Um, With white supremacy, blacks and Palestinians and other racialized groups can in principle find common ground against a common enemy, the white capitalist colonizer. But if anti-blackness determines the horizon of human interaction, Palestinians or any other non-black people of color are consciously or unconsciously aligned with the forces of anti-blackness, right? The question is how? For Wilderson, Palestinians are invested in the grammar of the human. They want their humanity recognized. They want their degraded humanity restored, and so on. According to Afro pessimism, this investment in the human is by definition anti black because the human, the idea and ideal of the human, is predicated on not being a slave, that is, on not being black. Wilderson returns on multiple occasions to an experience he had with a Palestinian friend when he was living in Minneapolis, working as a guard at the Walker Art Center. This leftist, pre-Afro-pessimist, Wilderson, talks about his engagement with the Palestinian cause. But things change when he witnessed firsthand the anti-Blackness of his Palestinian friend. He describes a scene, and the scene has a kind of function of almost like a primal scene for Wilderson. When his friend had learned of his cousin's death during the First Intifada, and started to recount his own experience of the occupation and of his humiliating experiences at checkpoints, how Israeli soldiers ran their hands up and down his body. But what stood out for Wilson is his friend's comment that the most humiliating experience was when an Ethiopian Jew did the body checking. Wilson draws a lot from the scene. He grabs an anti-blackness in his Palestinian friend. Here, Wilderson determines that the anti-blackness, right, that infuses this anti-black liberal economy, organizing the circulation of blackness in the U.S., is precisely the same one as the one operative in the occupied territories. So there is no difference here between his Palestinian friend, his fellow revolutionary subject, and a white supremacist. So this was a formative moment for Wilderson. He lost faith in the non-Black people of color. Um, for him, Palestinians are on the other side of the antagonism, right? They're not Wood Blacks. My response to Wilderson is that, first, I don't necessarily question his friends' anti-Blackness, right? Arab communities, like any other communities, are by no means immune from anti-Blackness. But the situation is not as straightforward as Wilderson claims it to be. I think Wilderson flattens too much here, right? There is no attention given to the settler colonial context. Isn't the Ethiopian Jew effectively fulfilling the settler logic of elimination? He never considers that the Ethiopian Jew might be singled out because he is a relatively newcomer to the land, and already holds much more authority over Palestinians who have been there for generations. On Wilderson's account, the Ethiopian Jew is not only black first, he's exclusively black, though he happens to be holding a rifle and subjugating Palestinians. So Wilderson wants to put a stop to the Palestinian solidarity that was forged in the Palestinian support for BLM protests. Black and Palestinian activists share a common cause. Right in the struggle, but Wilderson sees this as a dangerous lure. I completely disagree with Wilderson on this point. The reality of Black-Palestinian solidarity serves as a counter-example to Wilderson's more totalizing pronouncements. Solidarity cannot be so easily dismissed. Anti-Blackness does run deep, and there is no universality of the Palestinian cause unless Right? And this is a crucial point, unless there's a reckoning with the concept of the human and as anti-Black grammar. Wolfson rules that possibility out. They're, by definition, right, they'll, they will, by definition, betray the, the Black cause, Palestinians. So there's no hope for any, any possibility of a Black-Palestinian solidarity. This is why, at that point, I turned to thinkers like Fanon and Moten, where I see them as being more generative, right? There is a resistance to ontologizing anti-Blackness for Fanon and Moten without at the same time diminishing the ontological devastation of anti-Blackness. So they don't want to ontologize anti-Blackness, but the document is ontological devastation. That's missing with the Afro-pessimists. To document the force, the ontological devastation of anti-blackness for them is to ontologize it. Right. And that's the, the problem, right? From that perspective, Palestinian will always be on the other side of the struggle.
0: Yeah. I think yeah, that that comes through really strongly in the book, just how you you really want to uh, anchor the Palestinian cause in the material reality. Um, and that's more more fundamental, maybe. That, um, that's that's what you especially focus in on. And um, I think that that segues nicely into my next question, which is uh, your chapter. Um, uh, it's titled "Thinking Under Occupation," and it explores the necessity for decolonization. Um, however, you you weren't against naive conceptions of a pre-settler time. Uh, to achieve this, you call for a contrapuntal thinking of indigeneity and exile. So can you, can you talk about what you mean by this, this contrapuntal thinking?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and this idea, that, uh, this time before the settler, is a formulation that I borrow from, from Wilderson, where he criticizes folks engaging in settler colonial studies, indigenous activists, by saying, you know what, you have a way out. Right, there's a moment before the colonial invasion that you can come back to, right? There's always that possibility. Whereas for black people, having been severed from Africa, in a sense, you become right. There's a kind of ontological mutation where Africans become black, right? They enter the slave ship as Africans, they exit as black. So there's no return to a certain kind of more originary form of being. Whereas for Palestinians, it's time before the settler is available to them. So indigeneity can fit very nicely into his critique. So part of my reflections on indigeneity is a kind of uh, implicit response to Wilderson's vision of an ontology that is already there, that can be restored. And the contrapuntal for me is a way of complicating what does indigeneity mean. This almost takes up back your your earlier question um, about indigeneity and indigenous, how it plays. So for Saeed uh, to read contrapuntally is to adopt a kind of double consciousness, a parallax perspective that bears witness to the entanglement of visions and voices. So for the exilic subject, right, uh, This internal dividedness and multiplicity are constitutive of their being. So what does it mean to read indigeneity and exile contrapuntally? It means resisting the lures of both rootedness and abstraction. It complicates the pathos of attachment and the lucidity of detachment. Indigeneity can easily translate into a form of identitarianism one that fantasizes about a time before the settler, right? Keeping in mind Wooderson's critique, where a proper indigenous identity is restored. And exile can also become a form of abstraction, a fetishized cosmopolitan sensibility, unmarked by the materiality of trauma. What produced exile in the first place? So to read contrapuntally is to complicate a kind of privileging of exile. For instance, you're detached from the world. And Saeed lived, right, that kind of division of the exilic subject. But he was never, he never fetishized that position. He never said it's the same as this one who's been dispossessed living in a refugee camp, right? Exile for him was a kind of intellectual attitude, vision that the privileges from that being attached in a particular mode of thinking. But he recognized that you can't just have the exilic subject floating in the air, right? You have to counter it. So he was also very passionate about Palestinian national consciousness, which stressed the the indigenous people. Um, So reading contrapuntally is to to resist the excesses of rootedness, right? Where it becomes your identity. Since you become indigenous and that's all you are, And then you link your identity to land, which is a recipe for disaster, as we've seen in other countries. How do you live with the other who's not part of your land? So I think the Palestinian cause for it to become a cause, you have to, in a sense, it entails a break from um, previous modes of dwelling. Um, And for me, this contrapuntal model is also a hermeneutics, right it's a mode of interpreting the world. And it's a particularly skeptical hermeneutics. It questions the interpreter's comforts, their full grasp or mastery of the situation. So, to read contrapuntally is to constantly question my visions, my commitments. Um, so, what follows from this kind of hermeneutics is an ethical, political benefit in imagining the other side. Right. Let's say I'm very much invested in the exilic perspective, the kind of universalist cosmopolitan perspective. To contemplate the other side is to contemplate the person who is invested in nationalism right, as a source of sovereignty and collectivity. So to contemplate what could be driving somebody to want this is to exhibit a form of contrabantial sensibility. Um, so here, imagining the other side does not mean endorsing the other's position, but it does make you a better reader and thinker, I think, if you learn to see the world from a different perspective, from another perspective.
0: Yeah, okay, well, there's two um, apex that you talk about, resentment and paranoia, um, and you argue that they they mark the Palestinian condition. In, in your chapter devoted to exploring these concepts, um, you, you write that, quote, um, that you, sorry, that you, um, quote, anchor ressentiment and paranoia and the material reality of the occupation. The reason is simple, to dislodge Zionism's ideological pairing of ressentiment and paranoia with antisemitism, and to recast the two as byproducts of an oppressive environment, not some quasi-ontological feature of the Palestinian mind, end quote. So let's talk about ressentiment first. With a reference to Kant, you you coined the term public use of ressentiment, and you contrast that to a private use of ressentiment. So can you unpack what are you trying to convey with ressentiment, and what is its public versus its private use? Sure, sure, sure.
1: Um, So the public use of ressentiment is my fusion of Kant's private public use of reason distinction with Nietzsche's powerful remarks on ressentiment. So and we can begin with Nietzsche. For Nietzsche, ressentiment helped to fuel the slave revolt that generated morality of good versus evil. Right, it fed a life-denying perspective on the world. Right. So slave morality, big slave morality, fueled by ressentiment, begins with negation. It deems what the other is doing evil, and only then affirms what the self is doing as good. But here I. I kind of trace ressentiment um, and how it undergoes a kind of transvaluation of value with Holocaust survivor Jean Améry. For Jean Améry, ressentiment becomes a way of mobilizing resistance to post-war Germany's move to forgive and forget, to put Nazism behind and move on. So for Améry, ressentiment indicates a refusal to play along, and embrace this new reality when, Ger- when Germany itself has not fully reckoned with what it did to the Jewish population in Germany and beyond. So this is the kind of... So I borrow Ressentiment from Emery, who alters it from the Nietzschean context. For Kant, the private and public use of reason refers to two ways of practicing one's reason. So for example, when you're a soldier you follow your superior's orders. And in doing so, you're using the private use of reason. But let's say you strongly disagree with a a military policy. You can express your concern by addressing the larger public through public speech, an op-ed, or today, a blog. Um, I don't know what Kant would say about blogs, but I I think it covers the public use of reason, Uh, maybe. Um, in this instance, you're practicing the public use of reason. When you make use of the private use of reason, you're basically working with the confines of your duties. When you, make use of public, when, when you make use of the public use of reason, you're acting as a universal subject, irreducible to the confinements of your organic community. So in thinking... Nietzsche with Kant, I coined the public use of ressentiment as a way to recast ressentiment, not as a slavish practice, but as a collective gesture, where it is not only my ressentiment that counts, but it is a ressentiment that ties me to others who have been wronged. So this kind of collective ressentiment, for me, emerges out of the public use of ressentiment. Whereas the private use of ressentiment is all about me and how I have been wronged, or my people. Right? It's linked to identity. So this public use of ressentiment gains a universal reach in its, in his refusal to follow German, Germany's and German and fellow German post-war script. Améry was displaying this resistant public use of ressentiment. But he cut off this gesture and regressed his private use when he gave unconditional support to Israel when his ressentiment fed an authoritarian politics rather than aligning himself with Palestinians who were precisely refusing to forgive and forget their displacement and dispossession. So Palestinian ressentiment, just like Palestinian paranoia, are not pathologies of the Arab mind, as Israeli, Israeli politicians and the supporters claim. They are first and foremost grounded in the material condition of the occupation. So this is where you have to start. You have to start with the occupation. This, this, these disorders or these bad affects have a material origin, not an ontological origin or a kind of biological origin.
0: Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, yeah, and I think it, it's uh, worth mentioning to the listeners. Um, you use the, the movie Divine Intervention in this chapter as an example to illustrate it. And um, I was happy to find that on, on Netflix. So uh, yeah. if anyone wants to watch that, it's I thought it was well worth the watch. Um, but to turn to paranoia now. So you, you spend a bit of time discussing Jasper Parr's ethnographic research, which found that some Palestinians believe Israel is still currently killing Palestinians to harvest organs. And there is of course documented history of this happening as you point out in the 90s, the 2000s and 2012. Israel generated a ton of feigned outrage and public denouncing of Palestinian paranoia from simply conveying the sentiments much of Israel's PR and Western media portrays Palestinians as outrageously paranoid. But in talking about paranoia, you urge an understanding of paranoia rooted in politics rather than biology. Can you talk a bit about just what is at stake in this hermeneutic?
1: Yeah, yeah. No, thank you. And... and and this particular section of the book is influenced by Fanon's own reflections on the kind of pathologies that he was observing in Algeria when he was treating patients, um, how they were suffering, what is the origins of the suffering. And he was puzzled by how French doctors were looking at them, right, reducing their problems to the Algerian mind, or right, these kind of abstractions. He moved away. He linked what was going on with them with the colonial situation. That was Fanon's kind of gift um, to us in terms of thinking of these pathologies, so-called pathologies. So in the in the occupied territories, right, to say to put the matter in in a kind of bold fashion, Palestinian paranoia is as much a survival strategy as it is a disorder. Right? How can you not be paranoid in a world which targets you for early termination, right? And the same thing can be said about black paranoia in the US. Um, some critics like Carrie Nelson were outraged when Puar reported Palestinian sentiments about the Israeli government's allegedly stealing Palestinian organs from dead Palestinian bodies, right? They accused her viciously of trafficking in this anti-Semitic trope of blood libel. And as you say, instances of organ theft by the Israeli state are very well documented by the Israeli government itself. So (laughs) it's like you're calling yourself anti-Semitic because you've documented this, right? The Israeli government documented this. So this was another shameless manufactured outrage to silence Palestinian voices and the voices of their supporters. So Puar works within a kind of anti-Zionist hermeneutic, which... I think, complements a contrapuntal hermeneutics, right? An anti-Zionist hermeneutic seeks to block the Zionist machinery that reduces Palestinian paranoia to an an anti-Semitic mindset, to a manifestation of this kind of eternal and irrational hatred of Jews. So this anti-Zionist hermeneutic demystifies the Zionist horizon of interpretation, which mandates that you show unconditional support, commitment to Israel, or else be charged with anti-Semitism. The constant threat of being called anti-Semitic is the price you pay for displaying any sympathies for the Palestinian cause. Even to be for Palestinian rights, for internationally recognized rights, becomes an anti-Semitic statement.
0: Yeah, and I think that I really like how you sum it up when you say um, if if you want to get rid of the Palestinian cause, uh, you must change the, the colonial situation, is yeah. effectively what you say, um, and dismantle um, just the regime that Israel has there. So, well... For many in the West, the the two-state solution seems like the most promising result that could lead to peace. And this is a perspective that comes through strongly in the recent 2021 film, Oslo. However, most Palestinians do not support this idea. And you write, quote, the two-state solution is a racist answer to the Palestinian question that ultimately fails to deliver on the more substantial claims of the indigenous population end quote. Can you speak to what is so problematic about the two-state solution? Yeah. What would you like to see yeah. instead? Yeah. yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, it's a tough one. I mean, so the reason why so many Palestinians reject the two-state solution is not solely because they want bi-nationalism. I will get to binationalism nationalism in a second. It's because they're so disenchanted with their leader's and with Israeli politicians, right? They don't see this as a genuine possibility. Palestinian land has been fragmented, right? The illegal settlements have exploded. So they don't believe it's ever going to happen. So here we have a kind of distinction between the impossibility of a two-state solution and its desirability. I'm arguing it is both impossible to realize and it's not desirable. So... To, to fashion a kind of solution that that Palestinians will desire is a challenge of activists, intellectuals, to try to present to them a model of coexistence that makes sense. So, you know, Paulette Shear's film, Oslo, um, is deeply problematic for me, not because it tries to recount what happened, and I have no doubt, I think it does a good job in, its representation of the negotiation process, right? There was, there was uh, good research that went into reproducing this. My problem with the film is its ideological commentary, the ways it effortlessly feeds on nostalgia for Oslo. What would have happened if Palestinians and Israelis had taken the next step, that difficult step? Ah, oh, this missed possibility. No, this whole line of inquiry strikes me as wrong. If we are to return to Oslo, and I think we definitely should, it is to see that from the very beginning, Israelis had no commitment to peace and genuine coexistence. right? So the Oslo principle, land for peace, was a lie from the very beginning. There is no solution to the Palestinian question without without a recognition of the settler colonial context. Right? The structural imbalance of power was there from the beginning. So what we're witnessing in Palestine, Israel is not a dispute over territory, which is the way the negotiations were going, right? You know, the Palestinians want to claim this land, Israelis claim this land, this becomes a dispute over property. No, it's not about property, but in but what describes Palestine Israel is an indigenous population resisting the invasion of Zionist settlers, bent on eradicating and um the the population the indigenous population and erecting in its place an exclusively jewish state right that is premise on their elimination so that's the problem right uh that's what is completely excluded and the film reproduces this right there's a at the end you get the ideological commentary at the end right this kind of nostalgia what could have happened next there were genuine efforts. People got along in the negotiations, but things faltered. Radicals from both sides um, ruined the process. No, the process was doomed from the start. And I think that's the force of of settler colonialism that you can't you can't continue the narrative of Oslo. So, if we start with the statement that Israel is a settler colonial state, then the next step is not, can we establish a two-state solution? And here, even in this language of a two-state solution, it's always as if a Palestinian state would be an out, would be the outcome of Zionist generosity. Like, can you please give us a state? We'll be nice, right? We'll be peaceful. So it's almost like they're giving their land to the Palestinians. Right? But putting that aside, right? If you recognize a settler colonial context, you don't go next to the two-state solution. You ask, how do you decolonize Israel? How do you de-Zionize Israel? That's what follows from the settler colonial context. But if you remove the settler colonial context, you have Israel, a kind of representation of Western power, and you have Arabs, right? You have Palestinians who are read through an Orientalist link. They're irrational savages. You can't really reason with them. They only understand authority. So you get a different kind of reality uh, if you begin with a settler colonial context. Um, so in a more immediate sense, how do you put an end to the Zionist cleansing of Palestinians and confiscation of their land? And here we can just briefly recall the West's response to Russia's, to Russia's aggression against Ukraine. Right, you have a clear invader, and you have the West rallying behind um, the Ukrainians. Um, so Zelensky was addressing the Knesset, and he said, "Ukraine is Israel." He was flat wrong, but <laughs> Ukraine is Palestine, right? Russia is Israel, right? I mean, this is this is the kind of model, right, where the West can should support towards Ukraine, but the same standard does not apply to Palestinians,
0: right? Yeah.
1: So this double standard is bewildering.
0: Right. And I I think another analogy I found really helpful in the book that I appreciated um, was just kind of um, looking at the Jim Crow era in the U.S. And it's, you know, nowadays, the Ku Klux Klan vision is just no longer accepted as a dominant discourse. And that's um, I I think that very much relates to um, what you're talking about with the two state solution. Yeah, right. So, well, let's turn to binationalism. And in talking about that, you seek to reimagine sovereignty. And you already hinted a little bit at this in your previous answer. Um, the title of your final chapter bears mentioning, as it's titled "Sovereignty" with a with strike through. I think "Sovereignty" or "Erasure" or "Barred Sovereignty." Um, so, in in a striking statement, you pose the question quote Sovereignty or subjugation? No, thanks. Palestinians must refuse this choice as offered." End quote. Can you unpack what's going on here? What is the problem with sovereignty as typically thought of? And what other type of sovereignty do you want to see? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I
1: mean, a funny anecdote here about sovereignty. When I was going through the copy editing, the copy editors thought, you know, I'm, I'm replacing sovereignty with a different word. <laughs> no, I wanted to keep the sovereignty bars, right? I mean, yes. it's a difficulty how do you speak about sovereignty? right, so maybe I can talk about that briefly before I get into binationalism. So, sovereignty is one of those categories that Afro pessimists and Fred Moten has really written against. Because, you know, this model of sovereignty aligns a certain vision of the human as possessing themselves, as being fully human, unlike the slave, unlike the black. So, for Moten, right, he introduces the notion of the unsovereign right? And I was always influenced by Derrida's notion of a sovereign without sovereignty, a sovereign without the metaphysics of sovereignty. So a kind of weak sovereignty that emerges in Derrida. So for me, if the question becomes, do you want sovereignty or subjugation? If by sovereignty, we mean the nation state with all its package, right? If it means reproducing an anti-black world because in a sense you've committed to this vision of the sovereign, then no, I don't want sovereignty, and right. nobody desires subjugation, right? Unless you're a slave owner or a settler, then subjugation is a nice concept. So, how do you rethink sovereignty? So, sovereignty under erasure, barred sovereignty, for me, signals that Sovereignty is a kind of double bind. You want it, right? And indigenous scholars, uh, uh, Glenn Coolhart, Leanne Simpson, I said, look, speaking to the Afro-pessimists, we recognize your critique. We're very well aware of Western sovereignty's murderous history. We've been victim of it as well. But for us as a community, if we give up on sovereignty, it's like committing a form of genocide, right? Um, you're committing suicide by giving up on sovereignty. So what kind of sovereignty can continue? It's not going to be a sovereignty that models itself after Western sovereignty, which has been murderous, which has tied itself to what it is not. What can I be sovereign over? Um, so for me, bi-nationalism, if it's going to be about the Palestinian sovereignty has to look radically different. So with binationalism so in in my book I don't make a difference between binationalism and a one state solution, right? I think binationalism evokes this model of two peoples living together. Um so either you have currently we have a one state solution, but we have a we have a racist one, we have a fascist one, right? Where some people have rights others don't. That's the current reality we have In Israel, Palestine. So binationalism as an alternative to the one-state solution that the current far-right conceptualizes, envisions um, uh, in in Palestine, Israel, this kind of one-state solution where the West Bank is annexed, right? It's more or less happening in front of our eyes. So binationalism, from this perspective, the The other binationalism would be a secular and democratic state. It is a one-state solution grounded in the axioms of equality and freedom for all. So here, binationalism is not so much about the restoration of indigenous sovereignty as a future mode of coexistence with the Jewish neighbor. So again, this is not a return to a time before the settler. Binationalism is through settler colonialism what emerges after it, not before it. So it is that sense of sovereignty um, that I want to. I want to preserve. I don't want a sovereignty that um, that makes it vulnerable for somebody like Wilson, for whom Palestinian sovereignty is always possible, even if not plausible, because Palestinians are not black. Right. And at this point, you know, to go back to the Afro pessimists in Wilson's analysis There is never the contemplation of the possibility you could be a black Palestinian. What would that mean? I mean, there are black Palestinians living in the West Bank, right? They exist. But for him, it's really a certain experience of blackness in the US that then becomes globalized, right? And there's serious limitations here, but that's a separate point. Um, But what I take seriously from the Afro pessimists is the challenge to the metaphysics of the human, right? This human cannot be intrinsically not Black and anti-Black. The kind of sovereignty you're going to adopt cannot reproduce that anti-Blackness. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, maybe to kind of wrap things up, I want to touch back on... Universality and, yeah. and solidarity. Um, and those are both strong themes throughout the book. Um, the Palestinian cause is a universal cause, as you say. And I guess, just given all we've discussed, who can get involved with this cause, with this struggle, and, and how would you want to, to see that?
1: Yeah, I mean, and I think I, I mentioned this briefly earlier, but. What is good for Palestinians is good for all. So Saeed famously said, equality or nothing. But then right after that, he said, for Arabs and Jews, for Palestinians and Israelis. So if you make equality and freedom kind of axiomatic, you create a universal framework. So what can you, you know, I talk in the book about imagining this kind of binationalism where you have Palestinians in power, sharing power with, let's say, the current um, hierarchy within Israel, but then fused. So you have Ashkenazi privilege, right? The, the um, European Jews, right? The Ashkenazi Jews have a kind of racial priority in Israel, right? And this is, this is how whiteness circulates in Israel. So one can imagine Palestinians linked to the PA, having a sort of kind of elite access, their own kind of hierarchy, who would be the person who would be the embodiment of concrete universality? In this scenario, it could very well be the Ethiopian Jew, right? If Palestinians have not reckoned with their anti-blackness, with their commitment to sovereignty, then you have that, that model of society that I think the West would be very happy with because it would duplicate their own kind of internal um, dynamics. But it would be no longer a universal cause, Rubin, right? It would be another state that is racist at its core. So to keep the universal thrusts of 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 the Palestinian cause has to Start, I mean, for me, it starts with what kind of solidarity movements can you build? So here, for me, solidarity between Blacks and Palestinians serves as a, as a kind of model. Um, so solidarity with the Palestinian cause cultivates a universal politics. It breaks with transactional models of solidarity. You help me, I help you. It compels Palestinians and comrades to break even with what is in their interests. So the revive Black-Palestinian solidarity is a case in point. When Blacks stand with Palestinians, they court charges of anti-Semitism. They lose standing among white liberals. What are you associating yourself with anti-Semitic Palestinians? When Palestinians stand with Blacks, they incite white terror. They lose ontological standing. Now, why are you aligning yourself with people with people who are hated by their own country, right? So here, for me, Black-Palestinian solidarity is a universal project or it isn't. But there's no other option.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. Well, a, a final question we like to ask is... Do you have any new books or research projects that you're, you're working on?
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> always. But I'm finishing actually a manuscript titled The Politics of the Wretched Race, Reason, and Ressentiment, where I expand on the politics of the so called bad affect.
0: So. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Zahi, for coming on the show and sharing about your book. Yeah.
1: Thank you, Ruben.